All right. Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, episode 17, uh, last of the season. You know, it's a very emotional thing when you reach uh, the end of a season. But Bezat Hashem, this is just, you know, the beginning of a whole journey, you know, for all of us where I I, I was telling Al Miz today, uh, you know, that I, I spent so much time speaking and, and, you know, giving off. Maybe it's time for me to listen more <laughs> and try to learn more from and uh, from the people around me so i think it's a good opportunity to have a little bit of a hiatus and of course you know uh you guys could always hit me up and uh we could we could always talk about these deep things especially in the banyas you know it's the the perfect uh place and you know uh, <laughs> for sure for sure you know it's it's great to have you guys as well um so let's let's you know dive in a little bit to the to the Eastern stuff as we usually do, um, and then we'll we'll go to the Zohar uh, as usual. So this this quote here really you know it, it struck me this week because it really kind of gets to the heart of what we're always discussing, you know. And and I love that you know that that we can be in this state together. We can always join in, in a in a certain sense this is not just a class this is not just a lecture the, the goal is almost for it to be like a guided meditation for it to be a place where we can arrive where we can all kind of our souls can meet in a certain way and um even though my mouth is is speaking most of the time i have this other part of me that's also trying to kind of pay attention to what my mouth is saying and be the observer and for me, it's a meditation as well. In a weird way, it's 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 myself guiding myself. But for you too, if you know, for all part of God or for all one, then it's it's also you guiding yourself as well today. You know, I, and I was debating whether or not to share this. It was a very strange thing happened to me today. I was, you know, I have this patient who's um, traked and pegged, and it's you know she has this uh, machine breathing for her, and she has all these tubes connected there. It's like. Just every single day, I see she's been in the hospital for 280 something days now. In it's in a row. And she's fully conscious, fully with it. She gets delirious sometimes after reassure her there's no bugs on my shirt, there's no bugs on her shirt. And other than that, it's fine. But today, you know, I, uh, you know, she's always listening to, you know, Christian music. It's always so beautiful. And uh, she has a Bible open next to her. You know, her visitors come and they read the Bible to her. And there was this one moment that you know she was looking at me as i was you know listening to her heart and 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 i just you i can't even explain it fully but it's almost like you lose yourself in that second and that split second where it's like who's the one helping and who's the one receiving the help and it's almost like you lose a sense of i'm the helper she's the healthy and it's just we're here together and it was such a, a split second and and i almost ran away from it right after that happened because it's so overwhelming when you feel that like here's a person thank god i'm healthy and she's you know and not thank god but she's not healthy and it's so overwhelming to to feel a little bit of that dissolution of the boundary because it's like it, it, now her suffering is my suffering and how do i cope with that and i immediately became all doctory and you know everything sounds good you know your heart as always is great and and I tried to reassure her and then, you know, I went about my day, but I keep thinking about, to, you, know, you know, back to that one split second of when I looked at her and felt that. And I know Rabbi Hittery mentioned to me, uh, Levinas, uh, one of these Jewish philosophers talks about, you know, finding the divine in another person's eyes. And uh, 
it's just it's a very emotional experience for me when I when I kind of come up close and personal to that level of of suffering um because you you really do feel that it's that it's your suffering as well and uh that's what I would like to kind of share with you guys in this class is that you know this is this is what we all go through together is like you know life in general could be could be joyous and it's everyone's joy and it could be sad and it's everybody's sadness and I think that's the beauty of coming here together every Tuesday night is that we get to to share in these experiences and the joys and the sufferings and everything and uh like the, we just finished Pesach, you know, the Torah says um, the word Simcha, Rabbi Sachs explains what is Simcha. Simcha is not just happiness, it's the joy that we share together. So, I, you know, that's that's the biggest blessing, I think, is not to escape suffering. It's rather to realize there there is no escaping it. There's no need to escape it. We're all in it together. And it just is. So here that, that brings me to this quote here. Suffering alone exists, none who suffer. The deed there is, but no doer thereof. Nirvana is, but no one seeking it. The path there is, but none who travel it. Why did I bring you that quote? Well, we spend so much time, you know, when we meditate or when we talk about this stuff, we're trying to outsmart ourselves. Sometimes we we're trying to, like I always say, like Alan Watts always says, we're trying to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're trying to make ourselves better using the vehicle of the ego. But once you realize there is nothing to dissolve, there is no one to dissolve, that you are part of it already. You're part of this perfection already. And therefore, there's, there's nothing that you need to escape from. So I think that's that's a beautiful thing because once you're in that mindset, you're able to surf a little bit, these waves of whatever's going on. And for me, that's the psychotherapy. That's the spiritual psychotherapy is feeling that way of like this moment is perfectly beautiful as it is with all that's going on. Feel into that. Um, so, you know, they have uh, a couple of quotes here that I want to bring to you guys. Um, so he says he was interviewing a student and he said, get up and walk across the room. He got up and walked and came back. He said, where are your footprints? So here is this extraordinary phenomenon, right? So, so this is, uh, all this stuff is kind of an excerpt from, from Alan Watts's lecture. Why did he do that? Why did this guru tell his student? Get up and walk across the room. All of a sudden, he like shocked him. He said, get up and walk across the room. And he says, where are your footprints? There's a way of being so in the now that it's the easy way in. It's the easy way to penetrate what we're trying to speak about. The path of least resistance. Yes. That, that words can never penetrate, of course, but that can point us to that path of least resistance. Exactly. And it's unbelievable because it's almost like a cheat code. It's almost like how could it be that being so in the now and realizing I don't have any footprints. All the moments that I was connecting until this one don't have to be dragged along to now. It could just be this one. 
that's wild. That's that's like if you take that the wrong way, it might throw you for a loop. But at the same time, it's the equivalent of you know I was just telling uh, you guys you know uh, um, Ortal and and Alex. Yes, the other yes. day, I was telling you, you know, it's the equivalent of what Alan Watts talks about, that mashal almost of a freight train. You know, a freight train is carrying all these cars. And the, right. the cars could all be thought of as like a series of moments. And if the freight train wants to unload its tremendous load, what's the best thing for it to do? Is it to unload each one at a time, one at a time, one at a time? Car. It's just uncouple that first car from all the other freight cars. And I think, you know, in my mind, psychotherapy as it's traditionally done is, oh, let me work through my ego with my ego, with someone else's ego in order to take one car away one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, which I think is also important. I'm a psychiatrist. How can I not say that? I agree. You need to work through traumas and you need to work through difficult experiences. And that's the equivalent, I think, of getting rid of one car at a time, one car at a time, one car at a time. But that doesn't mean you can't also do the easy thing, which is uncoupling that little engine that could from the rest of those cars. So that's what we're kind of aiming for. Um, here's another, another great quote that I love uh, from this Zen kind of philosophy. The master Bokuju was asked, we have to dress and eat every day. And how do we escape from all that? In other words, how do we get out of routine? So that was somebody, his student basically was asking him, that. How, how do we get out of this routine? You know, there's a great song my rabbi in Israel showed to me called The Pretender, where it's like, you know, you get up in the morning and, you know, you, you do all this stuff and you go to work and he goes through the whole routine of the day. And then the chorus is and you get up and you do it again. My rabbi looks at me, he's like, isn't that so depressing? And I, you know, I thought to myself for a second, I said, it doesn't have to be depressing. <laughs> Within the routine, maybe you could find what's hiding behind it. The awareness. Maybe it's like once you get good enough at kind of not being always so surprised, when the surprises do come, they're unbelievable. And at the same time, you get better and better at noticing what's behind it all. And once you learn to just be so present, what? how simple is it? Wow. Baruch Haba. Fadal. Fadal, good to see you. Baruch Haba. Always a pleasure. So we're, we're doing some uh, some Eastern stuff, some Zen stuff, and we're going to do Zohar soon. It's good wow, to see so you. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even know what you just stepped into. I'm no, just warning you. <laughs> for better or for worse. No, this is great. It's great to have you. No, this is great. Baruch Hashem. Hopefully you enjoy. You'll give, you'll give me your criticisms at the end, okay. <laughs> which I hope you have. Um, so so the, some guru, guru is being asked by his student, you know, how do we escape from routine? And the guru answers. He said, we dress, we eat. He said, I don't understand. Bokuju said, if you don't understand, put on your clothes and eat your food. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You know, you know, most people, what do they do when they take a shower? They don't just take a shower. They think of 47,000 things. They don't just eat their food. They ruminate about all things about the past and all things about the future. But 
to be able to eat a meal in peace is the most unbelievable thing. It really is. And, and nirvana is this moment so long as you don't try to change that. Right. And it's, it's, it's an unbelievable thing. We, you know, we discussed so much about food in the last semester of classes when we talked about, you know, Hasidut a little bit and um, you almost like seeing the letters of your beracha becoming, you know, kind of crystallized into the food, like these, these meditative techniques to try to, I think, capture this very same spirit. Right. Um, another Zen master was interviewing a student. He said, you see all these stories I'm telling you were connected. And what I want you to do is grasp intuitively the connection. So the student, oh, this is the one, get, get up and walk across the room. It's the same kind of idea. Where are your footprints? So what's this extraordinary phenomenon we're talking about? He's saying, now let me say, having presented you with all these fireworks, let me say a few sober things about Zen as a historical phenomenon. Zen is a subdivision of what's called Mahayana Buddhism. Um, and as you know, that is the school of Buddhism, which is concerned with realizing Buddha nature in this world. So what does this mean? This to me is psychology. This means this is a person who was in what we call this lucid dream of life, was in this kind of lost space, and was able all of a sudden to wake up, to realize that he was dreaming. And I think this is an unbelievable Mashal, an unbelievable metaphor for what we're trying to talk about. He's saying, within this world, you can realize that. You know, so some people that hear that first noble truth, which is life is suffering, what do they say to themselves? Bless you. Okay, they, they say life is suffering, and then they say, okay, so maybe I should choose death. I know that's a very extreme thing. And that, that, that too. But I think uh, it's almost like, all right, if life is suffering, and by the way, we can talk about how dukkha, that first noble truth doesn't have to mean suffering, could mean the empty space, which is its utility, right? Dukkha comes from the Sanskrit word of like the, the circle inside of the wheel where all the spokes connect, where the, the functionality of the wheel comes from that empty space, which wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be functional without it. And like a bowl is only useful in its emptiness inside of it, not the bowl itself. In that sense, you could you could really understand that first noble truth and the rest of those noble truths. But the point is, if you were to make this jump and say, well, if life is suffering, then maybe I should choose death. The point of this is you don't have to go that route. The point of this is you can realize this within this world. And it's not by necessarily by going off to the mountains or by renouncing family life every day, et cetera, et cetera, as if that were an entanglement. But realizing in the midst of life, so we're life affirming the possibility of becoming a Buddha or enlightened. And so the great ideal personality of Mahayana Buddhism is the Bodhisattva. So it's such a it's the biggest misconception, I think, when people hear Buddhism, they think of the guy on the in the robes who you don't see somewhere off on the mountaintop. But the point is it's supposed to be a bodhisattva, sadikim as it says, like somebody who is involved but doesn't get lost in his involvement a word now applied to somebody who has attained nirvana but instead of disappearing comes back in many many guises zen is mahayana indian mahayana buddhism translated into chinese and therefore deeply influenced by taoism and confucianism zen monks brought confucian ideas to japan and the origins of zen lie actually around the year 414 at which time a great hindu scholar by the name of Kumajariva 
um, was translating with a group of assistants, the Buddhist sutras in the Chinese. So I'll just, you know, read a little bit more of this. One of his students taught that all beings whatsoever have the capacity to become Buddha, to become enlightened, even rocks and stones, and that even heretics and evildoers have the Buddha nature or Buddha personality potentiality in them. And everybody said he was a dreadful heretic. But then a text called the Nirvana Sutra came from India, which said precisely that. So everybody had to admit that this man is right. He also began to teach that awakening must be instantaneous. It's a kind of all or nothing state. And I love this here. He says, I don't mean that there aren't degrees of its intensity. But once you see the principle, you see the whole thing. As they say, when the bottom falls out of a bucket, all the water goes together. Right? So it's almost like understanding one part of this whole symphony of the universe teaches you about the whole song. Looking at one part of it implies the whole thing. And seeing it clearly means that you see the whole thing clearly. But the funny part is, and the humor in it, is that it has to happen by accident. It can't happen in any way, shape, or form from you trying to make it happen. You know, so a friend of mine told me he was, uh, you know, tripping on acid. <laughs> and uh, he was walking and the sunlight hit his sunglasses in such a way as the way that the shadow hit his eyelid all of a sudden made him look for the one who's looking and right then and there he felt it and that's that to me is an unbelievable thing you know I, i'm not promoting anything here you know don't quote me on that one but i do think that it's that it's a really unbelievable way of of understanding this type of experience. Um, so we can we can continue with this. You know, I want to give a little bit of uh, time to the Tao Te Ching, and then I promise we'll do some Jewish stuff. We'll do so. I feel like it's I so did, jarring for, say, for you. I, I feel like Mr. Like Nami, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like disappearing into the mountains and all that. Like I really always liked that with uh, like with the Nazir. Yes. Like how they like kind of they don't they kind of discourage that whole behavior and it's kind of like you know you could do it for like a year mm -hmm. and then like come back and Korban Fatad and all that because really like it's not what you do. And that's the debate, right? You want to be in the world, you know. Like, that's the debate, though, right? We're not sure if the korban hatat is because he did something wrong or because he's stopping that. Right. That's but, the but debate. In either case, you, yeah. they are saying, come, like a year max, come back, you know, like you know, like you didn't. When did you get right? a year? Uh, oh, it's not a year max. A year for as long as you want. Yeah, that's what I think. Oh. oh. I think it is. So that's that's the whole debate, and even within Zen, there's. Certain people who are like a Pradiega Buddha, which is like a person who goes and is a private Buddha, they go on, on their own and they just, and that's it for them. You don't hear from them anymore. And there's not really a judgment of them, but there is like a, a lauding of the people who come back and are Bodhisattva. But I don't think there's really a negative judgment per se, at least in the older forms of Buddhism, maybe a little bit more in the newer forms of Buddhism. It's more encouraged to be a Bodhisattva, somebody within the city. But Bottom line is, I think whatever the person's journey is, it just kind of is that, you know, and if we are really all one at the end of the day, then it doesn't make even sense to, you know, whatever in whatever, if there are lifetimes, you know, then in whatever lifetime, 
I end up helping myself with myself, then I'll do that. And then in the, in the certain lifetime, I just go off on myself and my own and I'm helping myself in that way. You know, so it's, it kind of becomes hard to talk about in that way, but it's a, it's a good point. Great. So let's so Zen itself has, like we were saying, um, a flavor of both uh, Taoism and more ancient Buddhism. So let's talk a little bit about some Taoism here. And then I, I promise we'll do some Jewish stuff as I as I keep in exactly no rush. <laughs> go over yeah, I, I would a hundred percent. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we'll find out. So here we we left off in the Tao Te Ching at this point. So just uh, let's let's see what it's saying. Give up sainthood, renounce wisdom, and it will be a hundred times better for everyone. Throw away morality and justice, and people will do the right thing. Throw away industry and profit, and there will be no thieves. So this, I'm I'm glad you reacted that way. Now, why did you react that way? Well, we're conditioned to think. Throw away morality and justice and people will do the right thing. Now, why am I saying that? When you create systems that are kind of forcing people to be a certain way, and I don't want to speak too extremely because obviously we have to, we would have to have a much more nuanced discussion about this, about like, I do think that the Jewish perspective is 100% important and it's one side of the pendulum and it's 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 necessary to balance out society. And I think there's a reason we evolved as a species with this tradition and this connection to God for a reason. I think it's there because we need to relate to an authority head and an authority figure as part of who we are to have a stable world. But at the same time, if we can only relate to God as this authoritarian dictator, if that's the only way of relating to God, then I think we we end up with more problems where what happens, where people become obsessed with the specifics, the, specifics, the concepts, and they're trying to use their ego to force themselves to be a certain way instead of flowing with the moment or flowing with the way that life is bringing about certain patterns for themselves. It's hard for me to, to speak it out, really. Well, because yeah. it's it's kind of in the context of the whole Dao De Ching, yeah. One thing that you said you've said many times: how many times do people do the wrong thing? Exactly. Uh, in the name of it, right? Well, Perfect. How do you say Perfect. You know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and yeah. how many pe- times do people do the the wrong thing for the right reasons, quote unquote, where they're fighting wars or they're you know doing mm-hmm. certain kinds of battles? You know, the the Nazis thought that they were furthering their own type of morality even though they were against Jewish people because of Jewish people's morality. And uh, secular humanists have their own way of sometimes doing violence in the name of their morality. And, you know, even radical Buddhists, there have been radical Islam. You know, you talk about any religion when it, you know, goes too far within its precepts will bring about violence. Now, I'm not saying that I have words that will fix the world or anything like that, but... There's a certain spirit. That's why I feel bad. You're kind of coming in the middle of this book, but it's great that you came. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, there's a certain way of like, it was painting this picture so far. And all the preamble to this is very important. In the context to it. 
yes. is also in relative to Confucianism, which was very rule-based, society-based, mm -hmm. filial piety. And you have Taoism, which is a lot about like the innermost, truest form, which is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Throw away the moralities and overcorrection. It's almost comedic. It's cosmically comedic. Exactly. It's written because it's correcting for like at the time in China, wherever, China, Japan, there was very rule-based, honor-based stuff that people weren't following themselves or following their attachments to society. Right. That's another piece of context. That's something else I was going to say. The Kabbalah, a lot of times it says, don't learn the Torah, don't study the Torah, don't do the mitzvah to gain honor. Mm -hmm. And when there's all of these rules, then it's like, okay, if I follow the rules, then everybody will like me. Then I'll become a popular person. I'll be a, I'll be a, somebody who, who everybody listens to or whatever. But if you, there are no rules, then you have to do a deep dive inside with Hashem. And it's like, what well, what is... What am I really supposed to do? Mm -hmm. There's less of the ego there. It's more of like trying to actually find the right right. I agree with that what everyone said. And the irony is within a system of rules, you can still follow the Tao. You can still understand what it means to flow within a system. Judaism itself is the Tao. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's, that's I don't want that Dao. to be lost. The Tao is, is this. It, exactly. It's this nameless, formless thing that's almost like the way that things flow. It's the watercourse way of the world. The way that things are. That's the best way I could put it. So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's that alarm that just went off. So, there's there's a way of like obviously we're going to be at a loss for words when we try to put you know and and another thing is how do you stay in line with the Tao? Well, by trying to be in line with the Tao, you almost deviate from the Tao. And that's the irony is just just being is the way to be with the Tao. And it's it's to, the reason I say all of this is because I have found that when you teach somebody only strict you know judaism without giving them any kind of psychology as a healthy background you create a lot of neuroticism where the and i always say this the ego is playing games with god where on the one hand you either feel like you deserve so much and god i deserve this i did all this for you god why don't you give me this or phony humility which is really just lack of self-esteem where god i'm not worthy and i don't deserve this and i don't deserve that and i and it's never feeling comfortable with this power struggle with God. But Taoism is trying to give you a way of being in the world and of the world where you don't have this struggle with God and you're able to just be with God. That's the best way I could put it. But let's keep reading. Maybe you'll get more of a flavor. Um, all of these are outward forms alone. They are not sufficient in themselves. All these concepts of morality and justice. It is more important to see the simplicity, to realize one's true nature, to cast off selfishness and temper desire, right? The way to do that is to realize your true nature. And the way to realize your true nature is just to flow with the Tao. Give up learning and you will be free from all your cares. What is the difference between yes and no? What is the difference between good and evil? Must I fear what others fear? Should I fear desolation when there is abundance? Should I fear darkness when that light is shining everywhere? In spring, some go to the park and climb the terrace, but I alone am drifting, not knowing where I am. Like a newborn babe before it learns to smile, I am alone without a place to go. Most people have too much. I alone seem to be missing something. Mine is indeed the mind of an ignoramus in its unadulterated simplicity. 
I am but a guest in this world. While others rush about to get things done, I accept what is offered. I alone seem foolish, earning little, spending less. Other people strive for fame. I avoid the limelight, preferring to be left alone. Indeed, I seem like an idiot. No mind, no worries. I drift like a wave on the ocean. I blow as aimless as the wind. All men settle down in their grooves. I alone am stubborn and remain outside. But wherein I am most different from others is in knowing to take sustenance from the great mother. Baruch Abada, Dr. Nasser. Um, so, you know, it's, it's amazing to me. I, I picked the most jarring possible excerpt, I think, almost from this book that I could start off Mr. Nahmias with. But it's okay because I think the flavor that it's supposed to be is this idea of it's what we're afraid to do. We're afraid to give up control to the degree where we're so present in this moment, where we're so flowing with what is, that we will look to others as an ignoramus. We'll look to others as somebody with no goal. Because in a sense, that's what you kind of want to be when you're in this state of mind. Because there's all we always talk about paradox, that it's very important to be in a state where, on the one hand, there is a goal and there is a destination. Baruch Abada Irwin, ID. Um, Hi, Mikey. How are you? Yeah, we got all the all the all the heavy hitters tonight. Um, <laughs> this is so, a finale. This is a finale. Season finale. Don't worry. But maybe we'll do some more. I don't know. Who knows? You know, maybe. Even... No, we we always have to do like uh, maybe a cameo. <laughs> yes. I know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll be in touch. Um, so bottom no, line, I thought I I thought knowing you, it'll be a cliffhanger. I gotta wait till September now. <laughs> I'm, I'm make sure I end on a cliffhanger now in the Zohar. You'll, just you wait. Just you're gonna freak me. You're gonna heebie me out. I won't be able to sleep for six months. It's coming. It's coming. Don't worry. In <laughs> about twenty five minutes, it'll be. You'll, you'll have this crazy cliffhanger. So I was explaining to uh, Mr. Nahmias over hey, here. ID. Um, hey, how are you? What's going on? <laughs> good, good. Hey, good. Yeah. Right. So explaining to him the paradox that we love to talk about, where on the one hand, you have to, you know, you should have some kind of destination that you're headed towards, but at the same time, there is no destination and there is no goal. So I think right. for me personally, yeah, I balance those two, and Judaism is kind of one extreme for me, and. This Taoist stuff is the other. So I, I go to work every day. I promise I do. And I try to save who I can. And I try to help people and, you know, get them out of the hospital healthy. But at the same time, I, I, if I only make it about healing this person and it's right. just that's the only goal and it's not fun for me and it's not fun for them, is it really worth it? I don't think so. I think it's really more worth it when everyone's having a little bit of fun alongside the journey. And it's about balancing that balancing that goal with the moment to moment enjoyment and that's how you kind of merge work and play and the idea of you know music i was talking to albert earlier today the idea of of music is so amazing because what do you have in music in music you have these notes and notes and notes each moment is a different note and we're trained musically to expect certain notes right a good hazan knows what you're expecting, and he's able to bring that about. And some avant-garde musicians will not do that on purpose, right? As, or so you guys tell me. Um, wow. Well, we had Meyer here tonight. But uh, the, the bottom line is, 
is my question now is Taoism therefore asking me to have these senseless moments where I don't connect the music underlying in, in whatever symphony is going on. And it's like, that's not quite it either. It's not to have a series of meaningless moments. That is 100% true. But at the same time, it's also 100% true that there's also a music, a musical phenomenon. There's also a symphony going on. And that's the paradox that we always talk about. That you, yeah, but there is, there, there is a, it's interesting you said that, Mike, because I read years ago, it's an incredible book. It's called The Art of Possibility. And it's by a husband and wife team, Benjamin Zander and his wife, Zander. And he's a, he's a major, like, uh, let's say, uh, like, uh, uh, not orchestra. What do you call the guy, like, who runs it? Oh, like, uh, does, conductor. Yeah. Yeah, con a conductor, master guy in Boston. And his wife is one of the biggest uh, psychologists or psychiatrists. And the book is about, is about merging music with, you know, psychology. Yeah. Uh, and 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 the, and the endless possibilities. One of the things I'll just tell you, it's, it was very interesting in the beginning of the book. They wow. go into the class, and they 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 did an experiment with at school where the teacher goes in the first day and gives everybody an A for the whole term. Hmm. And they said versus the other class doing the same work, they excelled because they they relieved the pressure of Amazing. that they didn't have to hit the grade. But they, they they discussed how leading the orchestra and psychology work together, the mu where music and and then so you say there there definitely is a, a concept also about levity and, and crisis also. I'm sure that you definitely. you practice that through what you do all the words. time. And you know what's amazing to me about what you said? It reminds me of as you guys probably know, Oliver Sacks has a book called Musicophilia, and he and in in his other book, uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, he talks about a certain patient with a certain type of brain damage and neurological condition where he wasn't able to identify things and to do simple tasks. But when he would be listening to music, he wow. was able to do those tasks and to identify those things. And it was unbelievable because it engaged a part of his brain that was able to buy into the moment to moment being connected. And it's exactly what we're talking about, where on the one hand, that's mm -hmm. so valuable. And on the, on the other hand, if you become too much about that, then you don't really understand music. You think it's all about the end of the music. And that's not what music is about. Does right. the Rambam bring any music into his repertoire, Mikey? A good question. I, I wish I could tell you something specific that Rambam talks about music. I'm sure he mentions it somewhere, but not that I know of. But right. I'll, right. Right. I'll ask I, her I, afterwards. We'll get back to you. Right. Okay, go ahead. That's the cliffhanger, exactly. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> so let's let's get to uh the Zohar now without any further ado. Can you yes, hear me? Oh no, no, yeah, I hear you, Doc. Sorry, yeah. I thought you were saying like maybe I misunderstood, but like with music, if you're just in the moment, music like one moment of music is one note. Exactly. Like, appreciate. It's like duh, right? Yeah. You know what? Or you're not you're not imagining what's going to come next. So there actually can be you know really no appreciation for music. It's not music when you break it down to the uh, millisecond. It's just a vibration. You can't. Yes. The only way it's music is if you integrate the whole thing. It's like staring at a painting, but only focusing in on one square center. 
or the painting and being like, wow, that's a great color. No, it's, it's a color, but, but that's, that's not the painting, right? That's, that's just one stroke of the painting. Yes, and, and that's 100% right. And the nimshal is, right, the equivalent for life is, you know, taking every moment as a staccato, meaningless moment. And I don't think there's, that that is totally right or wrong. That's what I'm trying to say about music also, is that there's a beauty on the one hand to appreciating what you anticipate and the song itself and the symphony and that's the storyline that we're living right now. That's the beauty of it. But at the same time, there's a wisdom to being able to understand what it means and take that perspective of each note, each quote unquote meaningless moment. And I think the sweet spot is when you can balance those two. When you can balance the symphony as it's being you know, meaningfully played before you with all its dramas and all its sorrows and all its joys, but at the same time, not being fully lost in it. And that's, as Alan Watts says, a really swinging human being is dwelling on two levels at once, where on the one hand, he's, you know, you know, fully in this world and fully compassionate and, you know, with it and feeling it. But at the same time, he's not lost in it. And he's also detached and also in peace and equanimity. And it's about balancing those two. But I, I think that's, you guys are all making perfect points. Um, so let's go to the Zohar without any further ado. Yes. Please, Mickey. Yeah. We were talking about the uh, removal of the ego. And mm. I heard this gorgeous interpretation. And I, I don't fully have it fully formed, but. I still wanted to share. Absolutely. In Ani Mili. In Mili, right? In Ani Mili, right? Yeah. And I think the context was about prayer. That one way that you can interpret it is if Ani, if in Ani Li, if the me isn't there, then me, the who, the 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 who is is for me. Meaning, once you remove your ego, then the Shekinah can dwell better. Amazing, so amazing. Ego, then, you, know, you know why this is so awesome? Because what Mickey's pointing out has also been pointed out by a lot of these, like Ram Das and all these girls. Like they say, nothing really matters. Alan Watts loves talked about that one. Well, if nothing really matters, that sounds so depressing, right? Nothing matters. But at the same time, that's Yeshme'ayin. The nothingness brings about matter. It's the nothingness that matters. Nothing matters or nobody cares. The nobody of the universe cares about me. Isn't that unbelievable? And, and it's like you, you, can, you can spin any statement like that and realize within it the wisdom. And it's amazing because unfortunately or fortunately, that's what a person is telling themselves when they hit their lowest point very often. When you hit your lowest point, you're open to the greatest change, as they say in Avatar. Right. So this idea of, of, you know, hitting your lowest point, you say nothing really matters. And then if you're able to spin that in the right way, you let go of the ego that's been trying to create a certain story and it all kind of makes sense. But Mickey, I'm so glad you brought that up. There's so much wisdom in that. It's great. So we left off in the Zohar uh, last time talking about another Midrash about Bereshit. Okay. This is on page, if you're following along, Page 93. 
as I see, if you see with the, the little footnotes, it's footnote 123 or 124. So um, this idea of Bereshit, Bara Elohim, Hashem created, uh, you know, or these six sefirot, Bara Shit, Bara Shesh. So let's see what it's what it's saying here now. Um, Rabio says, said, certainly so I heard the holy lamp say so, that Bara is a concealed word, closing, not opening. Right, so who is this holy lamp? Of course, it's the Bishimon Bar Yochai. Um, as long as the world was locked within the the word Bara, it was not did not exist. Enveloping everything was Tohu chaos, and as long as Tohu reigned, the world was not did not exist. When did that key open gates? When was it fit to be fruitful to generate offspring? When Abraham arrived. As, as it is written, these are the generations of heaven and earth. So it's saying there was this primordial experience. I always think of the singularity of the Big Bang. Because in a sense, that's the language of it. And Dr. Nasser pointed that out to me years ago. That's really the language of, of what's going on. And you have um, this, this singularity and in the early part of the, you know, the universe. And it's like the Zohadir is describing... The meeting place between when Chokhmah joined with Bina. And it's saying that Chokhmah almost engraved a space within Bina. And we know the laws of physics and time and space were so kind of, you know, elusive at that time. We don't understand the laws of space-time during that singularity. But somehow it was like a key opening a lock. And it opened this gate. And when we left off last time, we said that there are 49 gates. And the fiftieth one has no side, and uh, you know, and we, we don't even know where it is. But uh, and it's only known that there's there's a, a spot for that key to open that gate, and only can that in that one little spot does that key fit to open that gate. Very mysterious language, but it's talking about all of this is happening while Tohu is reigning. What's Tohu? Tohu is Hochma, according to this. Right, and Tohu is this primordial chaos, the primordial divine substance representing pure potential corresponding to the Greek philosophical concept of Heil, primordial matter. Right, so it's this idea that the entire world, really the lower Sifirot, and everything that's being created at that time is being formed from this Chokhmah, from this potentiality, the equivalent of the male element and the female element now happening, right? And it's amazing here, the what's happening, we're constantly blurring the lines between creation of universe and creation of you as an individual. Why do we keep doing that? We always talk about, is the world in my brain or is my brain in the world? It's both. You can't escape a certain level of first-person egoistic perspective on the world. Who is doing the one knowing this world? It's you. You can't escape that. Only once you accept that the world is in your brain just as much as the brain is in your world, as your brain is in this world, can you balance this, you know, humility and ego game that we're playing? Now, why am I saying this? Well, what did we just say? We're comparing the creation of the world, this whole cosmic, unbelievable thing, to, you know, the equivalent of the insemination of a woman, 
That's what the Sefirot are constantly trying to say. But and that's what the dance that's happening here between Chokhmah and Bina, and even more so to, to kind of prove this. When did that key open gates? When did right? When did the whole universe, upper Sefirot, lower Sefirot, everything? When did it get created? And when was it fit to uh, you know to be fruitful to, to generate offspring when Abraham arrived? And it's like what? What in the world could that be talking about? Well, from the Sefirot perspective, what's who is Abraham? Which Sefirah is Abraham? Abraham is Hesed. Exactly. So you have Chokhmah, you have Bina, and then you have Hesed. Hesed is the offspring, of course, of, of Abraham, and he symbolizes Hesed. But I think as, as that's 100% true within the context of the Zohar. But at the same time, what's the secret message within the Zohar? So do you remember in Bereshit when it talks about Adam Arishon? Adam has Cain and Hevel in the beginning of his life. And then something weird happens. Abraham is 130 years old. So Sorry, Adam. Adam has Cain and Hevel early on in his life. And then Adam, he, he's 130. And the Torah says, Vayolid bidmuto ketsalmo. He creates in his image in his likeness. What does that sound like to you? Exactly. It's blurring the line between God creating man and Adam creating shit, who we come from and the rest of the world is coming from. Oh, that I didn't even think of. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. That's that's next level. Oh my god. That's next level. That that you gotta you gotta add a footnote in there, Mickey. No joke. I didn't even think of that, but that's that's exactly what's going on. And it's like, Adam, why was he 130? You read Rabbi Shama's book. 13 is Gematria Vehad. And, you know, we could talk about Gematria another time, but I think it's there when it's a literary device used by the prophet. And there's a million examples of 13 being Ehad, right? The monotheistic. That's why Yishmael gets his Brit Milah 13, because he wasn't part of the covenant itself, which is eight. And by the way, how many more years does Adam live? He lives another 100, 800 years and then he dies. So he lives to 130. He has shit. That's when he reaches the level of almost emulating God and understanding monotheism. It's comparing him to God and his creative ability. That's Adam 1, right? Is the creative Adam. And then Adam 2 comes about. And that's the next 800 years where he spends his, the rest of his life in a covenantal knowledge of God. It's trying to symbolize that and hint to you that. And then he died at age 930. Because it's trying to show you he was able to achieve both states, even the covenantal level he, he achieved. But now let's get back to Abraham. So Abraham is arriving. It's It says these are the generations of heaven and earth. Which is crazy because you're talking about the generations of that's usually the language we use for people. Why is it talking about Shamaim Va'ad? It's as though they are our physical parents. Well, they are, and we're in relation with them. But they say, don't read Am, read it as we have learned Be'Avraham, right? So don't read it as when they were created, but with Abraham, through Abraham. Through Abraham was the universe. Created. So that is absolutely wild. What it's saying is, in a sense, 
almost like the entire right, whereas everything was concealed in the word bara, now the letters are transposed and re- rendered fruitful, a pillar emerged, generating offspring, ever organ, holy foundation on which the world stands, right? So bara and ever, all right? Uh, the word ever means like this, this divine phallus almost that's emerging. The letters of bara were rearranged into ever, which not only forms the beginning of Avraham, but also signifies the male organ, Yesod, the divine phallus and cosmic pillar, which, which is going to create the lower worlds also. So bottom line here is it's almost saying all of this stuff didn't happen. The whole universe as we know it can't even really be thought of as existing from one, from one perspective until Avraham arrived. Why is it saying? It's saying until a human being who could be in relationship with the world in the way that we're talking about arrived. It was as though the world didn't exist in that way. And you could say, Oh, wow. That's so egotistical. That's so anthropocentric to say, look, the world, the universe, the cosmic Sefirot didn't exist until Abraham arrived. And the answer is yes. From one perspective. Yes. From the other perspective, absolutely not. But from the other perspective, yes, that's true. Because until there is a subject, there cannot be an object. Until there is an observer, there cannot be that which is observed. Until there is one to relate to all of it, there can be no relationship between anything. Please, yeah, yeah. First one is... I'll say the second thing first. Second thing was... Uh, just to give an easier way to understand what we're talking about when we say is that they say that is the male, right? Mm-hmm. And Bina is the woman. Exactly. So if you think about uh, it, yeah. let's say, what is the male when he creates babies or what is Bina? It's like a li- lightning bolt. Mm-hmm. It's like the light bulb or it's like when when a person that well, while they're having sex, it's, it's that immediate yes. Uh, release right so that's the chokmah that when Hashem or when you get a light lightning bulb turns on right and then what's binah that's the end that's the mother after you release inside of her then she can't just pop out a baby you need months to develop it to un- to do it to make it you go this way you go that way so you can think of it either as a child or as an idea that if you have the mm-hmm. light bulb now you need to start to challenge it and, and, mm-hmm. and let it grow and let it sit and let it, let it develop you can also think of it. I think Adis, Chamaimba uh, Adis. Exactly. So, so then that's uh, the M is Chokmah. I'm uh, uh, sorry, the, the Av is Chokmah, but the M is Bina. And then Abraham is the, the baby that mm. emerged after all of that. And this is so crazy because I'm uh, it's, it's helping me put a lot together. In Pikabo, it says in, in, the, in the fifth chapter, I think, in the beginning of the fifth chapter, 10 generations. It says first ten Hashem created. It said by Hashem ten times in Bereshit, uh, and then things were created. Hashem made in ten. Then it kept talking about the ten. So ten generations between Adam and Noah. So Adam was mm-hmm. a key figure. No, Noah was a key figure. Ten generations from Noah to Abraham. Abraham. And it, and then after that, it focuses on Abraham. It said ten tests were given to Abraham that he passed. And because of that, there were 10, because of his passing the test, then we saw all Bidacha come from it. So it was almost like he was the major milestone. And then because of that, we had 10 Makot. We had 
And by the way, how many generations until Moshe from Abraham? Six. And that means there's 26 generations until Moshe Rabbeinu, who brought about the knowledge of Yod Kevavke, who is 26 in Gematria. And that's in Parashat Vaira, what's going on, where there's a whole chiasm there. And between every Yod Kevavke and its, and its counterpart, Yod Kevavke, is either 52 or 26 words. And you count that Yod Kevavke to the end of the Torah, there's exactly 1352 Hashem's name, which is 26 times 52. Or if wow. you count that Yod Kevavke right before, Ushmi Hashem until the end of Nevi'im Rishonim, it's exactly 2600 times that God's name appears. That's the revelation that's of Parashat Va'era. But that's, you know, like a side point. But <laughs> I think what Mickey's saying is unbelievable that, that there's something that happened when Abraham came about. And this, this, the, the 10 and the 10 is almost like periods of time that are trying to, to express this idea, right? So, yeah, and, and they're telling us. Mm. In the Kabbalah you read it and you think, okay, what's the gaze? Mm. But then you go here and it's saying, no, Abraham was the yes. whole thing. And in that Kabbalah, it's saying, Abraham, we stand on his shoulders till today. Wow. You know, you know why it's so the... poignant to me that, that so you bring this Abraham, the person, of course, is the one thing. And then the other part is the cosmic understanding of what is Abraham symbolizing? What is it? What does it mean, Hesed? You talk about that that mystical experience that everybody loves, and it's like the experience, I think, is not just love. It's the word chesed, I think, really kind of encapsulates it even better than the English word love. Like they want to call it loving kindness. Chesed is that loving kindness that's flowing through the world. And when you see the world as that, when you see the relationship between all things as chesed, it leads you back to the understanding of the oneness. It leads you back to the Bina, to the Chokhmah, to the Ketik. Exactly, exactly. It's it's that which is leading you back. And as we say, Olam Chesed Yibaneh, it's constantly unfolding from Chesed. It's, it's, this world is somehow turning of itself, of itself. And it's like, you know, what's the first billiard ball that, that knocked, you know, that began all this stuff? Well, you can't really point to it. It's this these fractals of causality where, you know, you look at the smallest, smallest, smallest thing and the largest, largest, largest thing, and they start to mirror each other. And it's almost like they merge into each other from the really, really small to the really, really large. And I think that's what Hesed is. Hesed is this merry-go-round of like never-ending, continuous loving-kindness within the relationship that is making up this world. Um, that's the best way that I could struggle to, to put it into words. Um, but now let's see what happens. When Evid was inscribed in the word bara, the supernal concealed one inscribed another inscription for its glorious name. This is Ele Mibara, or Mibara Ele, who created these, right? This is exactly what you were saying, Mickey, right? You, what was the quote you brought again? Oh, Im Enanili Mili. Right, so it's that bringing the question, but seeing within the question the answer. Me bara ele. Who created these? What do we say is me? We said me, right? Who created these? The holy blessed name, ma, what was also inscribed. So who's me? Me, I think, is bina, and ma is shekhinah. So that's unbelievable. So it's an answer. It's not a question. It's saying bina created those six sefirot. And also, by the way, at the same time, Ma was, Shekhinah was creating the lower stuff, 
in this world, like all the physical reality. Out of Bara, it generated Evid, also, I'm sorry, inscribing Ele at one end and Evid at the other. All right, so that's amazing. Why? Because what's the Pasuk? Ele toledota shamayim veharitz behibaream. On the one hand, you have Ele. So the me is creating Ele. Right? Me, bara, Ele. That's the beginning of the Pasuk because Ele is the six Sefirot upper realm. Right? And then the lower realm, Behibaream, has the word Eved within it, which is creating the lower uh, world, worlds, right? Which is, um, and what, what, what's happening here, right? Me, bara, Ele. And the Eved is creating the lower ones. Why is this so important? We're going to see now. Uh, Ele exists. Um, sorry, holy concealed on Ele exists. Evid exists as one was completed, so was the other. And Evid engraved He in, in Ele Yod, right? So what we're having now is Avraha and Elohi. And what's happening? Letters were aroused to complete one side and the other. It produced Mem Mem, two Mems, moving one to this side, one to that. The holy name was completed, becoming Elohim, and the name Abraham as well. So the simultaneity of the two is being so beautifully expressed through this very artistic midrash of Ele The Ele in the beginning of the Pasuk becomes Elohim, and the Behebaream is Ever and Avraham. And it's just an anagram of Avraham. So on the one hand of the pasuk of this amazing pasuk of Bereshit is Elohim. And on the other hand is Avraham. They're partners in this creation. Elohim is creating this upper realm and the lower realm eventually. But he needs almost Avraham to help him create that lower realm. Or almost for it to be worth the candle, as they say. Right? That... The beauty of this relationship between God and man comes from our ability to know that God is, right? Without us knowing that God is, can you prove to me anything about the world if you weren't here? No, you would never be able to do that. So I think what it's trying to say is don't become a phony holy. Don't become so self-effacing that you start to say, I don't matter at all. You say, look, you say, who doesn't matter? <laughs> you know, who is it that, does, that says they don't matter? Who are you that's doing the talking? Don't be too extreme in either way. All right, so that's why I love this, because it's kind of balancing out what you might have thought. If you only had Taoism and Buddhism, you might have gotten, gone down that rabbit hole. But if you only had Judaism, Judaism you might have gone down the other rabbit hole. It's like, be balanced. Um, the, then life was generated, and the complete name emerged, unlike before, as is written, these are the generations of heaven and earth uh, as when they were created. All remain suspended until the name of Abraham was created. What does that mean? That is unbelievable. Everything became suspended until the name of Abraham. Right? So, you know, you even look in the footnote, it's just referring back to this idea of is the same word as Abraham. That it wasn't really created until Abraham was there. And I think that's hitting on everything we've been discussing until now, that it was this divine partnership with Abraham that makes it all worth it, or even possible that you have this kind of uh, model of a human being who is in relationship with all of it, 
That's the goal. I'm not saying everybody before Abraham didn't count. What I am saying is that the, the, the point of what it's trying to say is, who was Abraham? He is the one that we think of as the guy who sought out that relationship more than anybody else before him. And that's what this spiritual journey is asking of each of us is like, can you be in relationship with all of it? Can you emulate Abraham in that way? Once that name was completed, the holy name was completed. Right? So you didn't get Elohim from the Ele until you got Abraham from the Behebade'am. God's name itself wasn't completed until Abraham's name was completed. As the verse concludes, on the day that Yod Kevavke Elohim made heaven and earth, right? Because right? And God now, amazingly, is called not just Elohim, but Yod Kevavke Elohim. Adonai Elohim is now the conclusion of the Pasuk because Avraham is on the scene. Yod Kevavke wasn't in the picture almost until Avraham arrived. Because Yod Kevavke is the God of relationship. Yes, ID. Why do they double up like that? Why does why did why is Hashem referenced so many different ways and in 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 conjunction like and 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 like they say it twice or three times with different, different uh, Hashem. Yeah. So I, this is different a Hashem uh, uh, kind of you know uh, description or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, no, this is this is a, a, an amazing question. So there's a few different routes we could take to answer that. On the one hand, it is true that in the ancient Near East, the term Elohim probably belonged to some uh, the pantheon of gods. It even is itself plural. Uh huh. Michael, could I, yes. I interrupt for one second? Sure. Part of this is our own fault. We should never say Abonai. Yeah. We should say in our head what's written. Hmm. By, by substituting one word for two words, we're ruining our comprehension. So your question would be answered if you didn't use the same word. Because they were thinking, oh, why are these... These, why do we have different words for the same word? Well, no, you only have that because we're we're calling it the same word. It's not the same word, and we're losing the meaning of the original text. That's all I'm saying. My, my pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally hear you. Um, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Is that we we kind of distance ourselves from a, a real understanding of. You know, what, what are these names trying to emote to us and to express to us? But like I was saying, in the ancient Near East, they had so many different gods. And one of the goals of the Torah is to show the unity of all these forces that people believed in and to subsume them within the, the just the monotheistic view of Judaism. But at the right. same time, I think it's beautiful because as a human being, you do relate to God differently in different times. So on the one hand, you sometimes relate to God as Elohim, which is more of the naturalistic way of looking at God as nature or this force of power of nature. When a hurricane goes and wipes out a village, that's like Elohim almost. Right? And, and it's almost hard to say that, but that's kind of what's happening. 
is the way that you relate to God when it's your personal experience of God. And when it's like, that's why I think it was now introduced into this Pasuk when Abraham came about. Or um, God says to Moses, I didn't appear to anybody as Yodkevavke before, which is weird because you look at all of Bereshit and it talks about Yodkevavke, but it's almost like they didn't get the glimpse that Moshe and Ben Israel are going to get of Yodkevavke until the unique connection that's going to form during Yitziat Mitzrayim, during the exodus from Egypt, right. happened. I think Do you think that, Mikey, by fusing yeah. all the different ways to say Hashem is like heebie-jeebie? Does it have a superpower? Like if you say Hashem, Elohim, all the way, and so many, it's referenced so many ways. Well, I, I, I'm just trying to understand why it should be referenced rather than an individual reference. So what I'll say is I think as a meditative technique, it has a lot of power in the sense that okay. it has as much power as you kind of believe in, where my rabbi in Israel kind of spent a lot of time trying to figure out the pronunciation of God's name. And he was kind enough to like talk to me about it, but not really give me the full answer of it. And he would never pronounce it, of course, but he was kind of like pointing me in a certain direction. And that meant a hell of a lot to me to the degree that when I meditate very often, I try to, you know, meditate on this, this name of God with the breath work, you know, with the inhale, almost like, you, you have one part of the divine name and with the exhale, the other part of the divine name. So I think to that degree, it is very meaningful. But if you get lost in trying to build up uh, power, it might not be so good. Ah, interesting. So, for example, um, Elohim is Dean. Yes. I believe Dean is Kibbutah. Wow. So I assume that those are the ones that are connected. But it gets a little bit deeper because there are multiple Orlan Mos, right? There are multiple worlds. Yes. You, right? There's the Gediyah and Asiyah and et cetera, et cetera. And in each of those worlds are 10 Sifidot. Ah, uh, And wow. so then there are different permutations. So this is actually what we're doing, Sifidat HaOmen. Uh, Notice the correlation, Sifidat. Uh, so one is, and I, I can tell you what today is. Yeah. Um, today Sifidat is... Give me one second. It's Gebura, but it's not just Gebura. Gebura should be Gebura. That means that the, the, I don't know exactly how it works, but that means that within one mm. um, of Yesod, there are 10 Sefirot, and now we're identifying the one of Gebura. And so often we'll see uh, different layers of Hashem's name interwoven with different mm. layers of Hashem's name, right? Well, Sometimes we'll say Hashem like this, and then in between those layers, Hashem like this. Like when they have those lamnatsea yeah. words, you know, they have all different forms. Sometimes they have it like this, and sometimes they have it like this, mm. right? And sometimes it's this word, and sometimes it's this word. So each of those have to do with a different level of uh, this and Beautiful. Hey, hey then, guys. How are you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's beautiful. And I think there's a wisdom in understanding, like, okay, what does that mean? There's a certain element of, like, the creative spirit within Gibura. Or like, you know, that's something to meditate on, I guess, each day of, of the Omer. That's beautifully said. Um, and we'll, we'll end off with this. Rabbi uh, Hiya, in response to this, prostrated himself on the ground, kissing the dust and weeping. He cried out, dust, dust, how stubborn you are, how impudent. All the lights of the eye decay in you. All pillars of light in the world you consume and pulverize. How insolent are you? 
the holy lamp who is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who has illumined the world, majestic ruler, prince whose merit sustains the world, decays in you. O Rabbi Shimon, radiance of the lamp, radiance of the world, you decompose in the dust, yet you subsist and guide the world. Right? So it's saying, even though Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died, he's so appreciative that these ideas of the dichotomy between God and man, and that don't, you know, write man off so quickly in your attempt to be humble, which is really itself possibly ego, and that this was so valuable to this hacham, to I think it was Rabbi Haya, that he was crying on the ground hearing this. Um, and the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai still live on. And ID, here's your cliffhanger. Is uh, you know, hopefully next time, maybe we could even meet another time on Zoom or in person or wherever, um, you know, soon. But we have these amazing stories coming up about the the stories within the Gemara about the Bihaya and the stories here in the Zohar that are almost exact and paralleling uh, those stories about the Bihaya, but are attributed to the Bishimon. And these they're these wow. deep and symbolic ideas about seeing Rabbi Hayya or seeing Rabbi Shimon up in heaven, very reminiscent of at the end of uh, Eliyahu Hanavi's career, he Elisha says, Eliyahu, I have one request of you. He's, and he says, what's that? He says, well, Eliyahu, I want you to give me peace and I'm a double, a doubling of your spirit. And he says, if you're able to see me taken from you, then it will be so. And if not, not. And he saw the vision of Eliyahu being taken up in a fiery chariot to heaven. And there's a lot of symbolism that we could, you know, unpack there. So there's the cliffhanger ID. Thanks. I love it. I love it. It's great. <laughs> what a pleasure <clears throat> to say, you know, um, it's the end of this chapter. Hopefully, maybe we could continue soon. Um, I would be more than happy to when, you know, time permitting. But, but uh, you know, open. that's right. Baruch Hashem, Shul is open for sure. And, uh you know what a pleasure being on this journey yeah, with you guys. That's that's right. Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of, fun. of fun. You guys are awesome. ID, you take me to the moon, Doctor Nasser. Thank you for ah, all you guys. Great group you put together. The insight, the 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 the, uh, the, the like I I say the the vast uh, platform, the web, the the interaction, the collaborative. It's it's incredible. You know, it's it's like I said, and and everything leads to something else. It leads to the it just opens up more avenues and more venues. You know, it just keeps opening and opening and opening, and that's really what thrills me about the whole, you know, this whole forum that we have with you. So Absolutely. God bless you. I, I love you. Bring out my best. I love you so much, and and it's such a privilege, really, to have the opportunity to speak with you and to hear from you. And I hope you know Hashem should give us the strength to keep doing this. Amen. Amen. Anytime you, anytime you're ready to roll and you have time. Just, just, te just text me and I'm in. Absolutely, I love you. All right, guys, have a great week. Aiwa, aiwa. Be in touch, guys. Hazak Baruch to everybody. Thank you so much, Doctor Nasser. Bye bye. Okay. For everything. Bye bye.